Today, we will finish our class series that we've titled My Time Has Come, and we will also see the last of Jesus being physically on earth, at least until the second coming. As you might imagine, all four Gospels have different versions of these stories and tell different sequences of the events following Jesus' resurrection, and they're all important in their differences. So I want to look at each one separately. So we're going to start with Mark's version, since his is the earliest and the briefest. In Mark's version, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, follow Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to see where Jesus' body is laid. Now, we don't know who this Mary, mother of Joseph is for sure, One of Jesus' brothers is named Joseph, but it seems like Mark would say Mary, mother of Jesus instead. Um, And it could be that this is the mother of Joseph of Arimathea, whose family tomb Jesus is about, is laid in. So it, it makes sense to me that this is Joseph of Arimathea's mother, but we really don't know. At any rate, Mary, the mother of Joseph, doesn't show up the next morning to help anoint the body. Instead, Mark says it is Mary Magdalene, obviously one of the most faithful and courageous of the disciples, who shows up along with Mary, the mother of James, and a woman named Salome. These three women had been named as watching the crucifixion from a distance. And again, except for the Magdalene, we don't really know who these women are. The women get up very early on Sunday, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, and gather the spices they've prepared. But as they walk to the tomb, they realize they're not strong enough to roll the big stone away from the entrance, and they wonder how they're going to get that done. Just then, they look up and see that the stone has already been rolled away. Someone's gotten there before them. As they duck into the tomb, they're startled to see a young man sitting on the right, dressed in a long white flowing robe, the kind worn by rich people. He looks like an ordinary elite young man. They aren't afraid. It's a different word here. They're not afraid. The Greek word here, our equivalent would be flabbergasted. Um, But he says, you know, don't be amazed. Jesus, the Nazarene you're looking for, the one who was crucified, is not here. He's risen. Look, see, here's the place where they laid him. Go, tell Peter and the disciples that he's already gone ahead of them to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. The women are overtaken with bewilderment, and they begin trembling. But at the young man's words, they turn and flee from the tomb and don't say a word to anyone because they're afraid to. And that is how the Gospel of Mark ends. If this was a bedtime story, you'd be like, wait a minute, that's the end? Are you kidding me? (laughs) As you can imagine, that ending did not sit well with subsequent scribes and copyists. So over the years, a more satisfactory ending was added. You can probably find it in your Bible in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. 
but we're not going to be covering it here as it was clearly added later by someone who had their own agenda. But that brings us back to the question, why did Mark end his story so abruptly? Was he interrupted? I don't think so. I think Mark ended it this way on purpose. I think Mark wrote his entire gospel as a chiasm, and this ending is the perfect completion of his chiasm. A chiasm is a literary form in which each major point in the beginning is matched sequentially by a corresponding point at the end. They, you know, count backwards towards each other and meet in the middle. Now, Mark loves chiasms, and the overarching one in his book is elaborate. Let's peek at the very beginning of it to see how it might relate to this weird, abrupt ending. Mark sets up his chiasm at the very beginning of his gospel with these words. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark is letting us in on a secret in the first sentence. He builds his entire gospel around how this secret is revealed to the world. This is, this is like the whole point of his structure. He goes on to support his opening statement by running quickly through um, John the Baptist statement that Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. And a voice said, you are my son. I love you. I am so pleased with you. And how Jesus goes into the wilderness and is attended by angels and how he gathers disciples to be fishers of men and how he forgives sins and heals so many people, but how he keeps telling them to keep it a secret. That's important. You see, Mark has let the reader in on the secret from the very first sentence. But the way Mark wants to tell this story is that the truth is hidden from the empire and the religious leaders. Mark is the one that said, that puts these words, you know, keep it a secret in Jesus' mouth. And he's doing it because that's how he wants to structure his story. It's like his suspense motif. This is, this is how you, you know, go through stepping stones in this story. And his whole gospel is about how the secret is unfolded and made available for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. At the very end of this opening section, Mark says, it is after all these things that the Pharisees and the Herodians began plotting together how they could kill Jesus. So that's the end of Mark's first big section of the chiasm. So let's compare that to the ending of Mark's gospel, the very last segment of the chiasm. We ought to find that each of these points matches up, kind of working from the inside out. So here we find at the end, Jesus in front of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. He is killed at the behest of those religious leaders and their supporters. That matches perfectly, right? Next, Mark shows Jesus crucified with a sign above his head that says, the king of the Jews. <laughs> the secret is no longer a secret, but is literally there for everyone to see. That matches perfectly. 
And of course, the very next thing is Jesus' resurrection. Rather than descending, Jesus rises. And at the very end of Mark's gospel is the young man in the tomb telling the women to go tell Peter and the disciples. That is a perfect match to his opening sentence about this being the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He begins and he ends with good news. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Messiah. Mark has to end his story here. It's the end of his chiasm. If he added anything else, it would destroy the entire structure of the story. Pretty cool, huh? So let's look at Matthew's version next. Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who says that the religious leaders posted guards at the entrance of the tomb. So his is the only story that tells what happened to the guards. He says that at dawn on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, we don't know which one, go to the tomb. And while they are there, there is a huge earthquake and an angel comes down from heaven and rolls the big stone away and sits on it. His clothes are as white as the snow and his countenance is like lightning. Now notice that in Mark's gospel, the earlier one, the man in the tomb seems ordinary, well-dressed, but ordinary. While in the later gospels, there's a lot more flashing lightning and earthquakes and stuff. So there might be a little embellishment going on here, maybe. The guards are so terrified, they shake and go weak in the knees and collapse on the ground as if they were dead. But the women, <laughs> the women are still standing. I love that part. The angel says to them, do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Come, look and see where he was lying. Now hurry, go tell his disciples that he has risen and has already gone to Galilee. You will see him there. So I think it's interesting that Jesus has already gone to Galilee, according to the angel. That Galilee is a couple of days of journey away. Has he started on the journey or has he been traveling there during the missing hours? Or can he just poof, be somewhere else instantly now? This is very mysterious. The women are afraid, but are filled with joy. They run to do as the angel bid them. But suddenly, Jesus himself is standing in front of them. He says, rejoice. The women fall to their faces and grasp his feet and worship him. Then Jesus says, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. So this is even weirder. Jesus hasn't even left for Galilee yet, despite the angel saying he is, has already left and is going ahead of them. In Mark's version, the young man, whom I presume was an angel, had also said that Jesus had already gone ahead to Galilee. So you can see that these stories may be mashups of various people's versions of what happened. So we need to be reading them for the impression they give collectively. There's definitely some common elements here. 
Well, in Matthew's version, those guards have to go tell the chief priests what happened. Can you imagine? I would not want to be them telling the Sanhedrin that they'd fallen down scared when an angel appeared. Well, as it turns out, the soldiers don't get fired. Instead, the chief priests and elders are alarmed by the guard's story of an angel and a miraculously empty tomb. They're not alarmed because they realize they were wrong about Jesus all along. No, they are alarmed because this is exactly the sort of story the chief priests and elders don't want circulating among the people. They do not want any hint that Jesus may have risen from the dead, like he said. After the chief priests meet with other religious leaders, they decide that what they need to do is bribe the guards to keep their mouth shut and stop saying what they're saying. So they bribe the guards with silver and instruct them to say they just fell asleep on the job <laughs> and the disciples came and stole the body. And the religious leaders promise the soldiers that if word gets back to the governor that the soldiers fell asleep on the job, the religious leaders will have their backs. They'll make sure the soldiers aren't punished. Matthew ends his gospel by saying the 11 remaining disciples meet Jesus on the mountain where he told them to go, presumably in Galilee. When they see him, some of the disciples worship him, while others aren't so sure. Jesus says to them, all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go and disciple all the nations. He uses the word ethne here, which includes the Gentiles. Go disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and telling them to keep intact all the things I gave you a vision for. That last bit is my best translation of the Greek. The words keep intact have a connotation of preserving or watching over. And at the end, the Greek is usually translated as Jesus telling them to keep all he's commanded them. But the word for command that is used here also means envisioning the end goal. And that's how I think Jesus is using it. Jesus is saying, He's given his disciples, he's given them a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is by how he lived his life, by the things he taught them. He's given them a practical vision of how to live in the kingdom of God now. And he wants them to keep that vision intact. Then he says, I will be with you all of the days until the completion of the age. But that word completion is not the regular word, telea. Instead, it is a compound word with soon in front of it. And the word soon means together or jointly. Jesus is saying he will be with us every single day until we together complete the age. And presumably the end time comes. Note that Jesus is not absent until the second coming. He is present and active and working with us. Make a note of that. So let's see how Luke tells the story. 
The way Luke tells it, the women arrive in the early morning hours and find the stone rolled away from the tomb. The women are named as Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joanna, whom Luke had previously listed as one of Jesus' faithful financial supporters. She's the wife of the steward of Herod's household. The three women enter the tomb and find it empty. The women are puzzled by this. Then suddenly, two men are standing beside them in clothes, flashing like lightning. The women are scared to death, fall on their faces. But the men say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember what he told you while he was still in Galilee. He told you it would be necessary for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day to rise up. The women run to find the 11 disciples and tell them what just happened. But of course, the men don't believe them. That is, except for Peter. Peter gets up and runs to the tomb. When he gets there, he enters the tomb and bending over, he sees there's nothing there except the strips of linen that Jesus had been wrapped in. So Peter goes away, scratching his head and wondering what in the world has happened. We catch up later that same day with a couple of disciples walking from Jerusalem to the nearby town of Emmaus, about seven miles away. I know all the pictures show two male disciples, but it is entirely possible, even more likely, that this is a married couple a man and a woman heading home from Jerusalem. In fact, since one of them is named Cleopas, which is a variant spelling of Clopas, so, um, and in God, John's gospel, John says there was a Mary at the foot of the cross who was of Clopas, so his probably his wife or his mother. My bet is that this is Clopas and Mary, his wife, trudging home to Emmaus after the crucifixion. The two are clearly identified as disciples, but only the man is named, which, and if the second disciple is a woman, that would explain why the second disciple is left unnamed. As they walk along, a man joins them and asks them what they are talking about. And they stop, their faces gloomy. And the one named Cleopas says, you must be the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened. And the man says, what things? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man, a powerful prophet, mighty in word and works before God and the people. Our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be judged and crucified, and we are so disappointed. We thought he was about to redeem Israel. And on top of that, today is the third day since his crucifixion, and some of the women went to the tomb this morning and say they saw angels who said he is alive. And when some of us went to check, sure enough, the tomb was empty, but we couldn't find Jesus anywhere. And the man says to them, don't you know that the prophets foretold that the Messiah would suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And as the three of them walk to Emmaus, the man begins explaining the old prophecies to them. As they near the village, Cleopas and his companion urge the man to stop and stay with them for the night. And the stranger takes them up on their kind offer. Then at dinner, when the stranger takes the bread, gives thanks for it, breaks it and begins giving it to them, all of a sudden they recognize him. This is no stranger. This is Jesus himself. And just as suddenly, Jesus disappears into thin air. The two disciples say, we should have known. Weren't our hearts on fire when he was talking to us on the road? And they run all the way back to Jerusalem, exclaiming, it's true, it's true, the Lord has risen. They also say that Jesus appeared to Simon, presumably Simon Peter, but Luke doesn't give us any more details of that particular meeting. Then while Cleopas and Mary are still, or Cleopas and his wife, whoever, or Cleopas and the other disciple are still speaking, Jesus himself appears in their midst and says, peace be with you. <laughs> the disciples are scared out of their wits. They think he's a ghost. And Jesus says, look, look, it's me. Touch me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, but they still don't believe him. So Jesus says, okay, do you have anything to eat? And they give him some fish and he eats it in front of them and tells them, these are all the things necessary to fulfill the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, where it says the Messiah will suffer and then rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these very things. Look, I am sending what my father promised you upon you. Stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Then Jesus takes them just outside of Jerusalem near Bethany. And there he raises his hands and blesses them. And as he blesses them, he is taken up into heaven. The disciples worship there and then return to Jerusalem rejoicing. They stay in the temple continually, always praising God. And that's the end of Luke's gospel. The very last gospel is John's, and his ver version is also different from the others. In his version, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb alone. So one thing we've got in all four versions is Mary Magdalene was there. <laughs> for sure. She sees the stone has been rolled away and she immediately turns around, runs to get Peter and John, who is called the disciple Jesus loved at this point. And Peter and John run to the tomb, but they don't understand what's happened either. The men go back to where everyone is staying, but Mary Magdalene stays behind. It was John's version we heard last week where Mary sees Jesus and thinks he's a gardener. But when Jesus speaks her name, she recognizes him. And he says, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I am ascending to my Father and yours, to my God and yours. And he sends her away 
to tell the other disciples. Then John has a bit that's similar to Luke's, where later that same night, the disciples are in a locked room because they're scared to death of the authorities, and Jesus suddenly appears in the midst of them. Here are the differences in the words that John puts in Jesus' mouth versus the words Luke does. In John's version, Jesus tells them, peace be with you. I am sending you as the Father sent me. Then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you hold their sins fast, they remain held. As it turns out, Thomas, one of the disciples, isn't there when all this happens. And he, frankly, doesn't believe the others when they tell him about it. He says, I won't believe it till I can touch the places where the nails were and feel the wound on his side. Of course, when Thomas does see Jesus, he has to eat his words. And Jesus tells him, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe, even if they have not seen. Another time, Jesus appears to seven of his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It's Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and a couple of others. They've been fishing all night, but caught nothing. Early in the morning, they see Jesus standing by the shore, but do not recognize him. Jesus calls out, how's it going? When they tell him their bad luck, Jesus says, Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And of course, they catch so many fish, they can't get them all in the boat. John realizes this is Jesus. And when Simon Peter hears that, he dives overboard and swims ashore, while the rest of the disciples tow the net full of fish to shore. Once ashore, they see that Jesus has started a fire and is making a breakfast of fish and bread. Jesus tells them to bring over some of the fish they just caught. Peter, of course, runs to do that and drags the net ashore. John says there's exactly 153 fish in that net, and it, and it doesn't even dare. Then Jesus invites them to eat. They all know it's the Lord, but Somehow he's different, and they're all afraid to ask him about it. <laughs> when they're finished eating, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of God, son of John, do you love me more than these guys? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my little lambs. Well, this is interesting because Jesus uses the word agape, which is a word for love that means high esteem and a sense of choosing to love someone. While Peter uses a different word for love, he uses the word philo for friendly affection, uh, a lesser sort of love, philo. So Jesus asks him again, Simon, Son of John, do you agape love me? And again, Peter answers that he, Philo, loves him affectionately. And Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. The third time, Jesus meets Peter where his heart is. Peter apparently cannot say agape to Jesus. I think perhaps 
not because he doesn't love Jesus so well, but because he is too ashamed to claim to love Jesus so well. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter had denied Jesus three times on the very same day that he had sworn he would go with Jesus to his death. Peter, Peter has been destroyed. And he knows his words. If he says, I agape love you, he knows that that his words mean nothing. Um he's he I don't I don't think he he sees himself as worthy to use the word agape love. So Jesus uses the philo word for affectionate, friendly love and says, Well, Peter, do you philo love me? And Peter is hurt because Jesus has asked him three times. And he says, Lord, you know, I philo love you affectionately. Jesus has given Peter a chance to state his love three times, just as he denied Jesus three times. Then Jesus says, feed my sheep. I tell you for sure. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you get old, You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and bring you where you do not want to go. John says Jesus said this because he knew how Peter would die. You see, about 20 years later, Peter dies by the order of Emperor Nero. Tradition is that he is crucified and that he asks to be crucified upside down because he does not feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Peter seems to get the point, because he asks Jesus, well, how will John die? And Jesus says, if I want John to remain alive until I return, that's none of your business. You focus on following me. So, of course, a rumor starts circulating that John's not going to die. And it is here that John finally confirms in his gospel that he is the disciple who leaned against Jesus during the Last Supper, that he is, quote, the disciple Jesus loved. John ends his gospel with a couple of epilogues in chapters 20 and 21. Together, they say, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. If everything Jesus did was written down, I don't think there would be enough room in the whole world to hold the books. What is written here is so you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing this, you may have life in his name. And so ends the Gospels and our class series, My Time Has Come. What a story! There are so many things we could talk about, but I thought we might have a little fun thinking back on what we see is different about Jesus after his resurrection. So that should have been fun. That should have been a fun thing to talk about. What y'all what y'all come up with? That was weird to talk about. <laughs> we kind of got stuck a little bit on the popping in and out and teleportation and that you know that point of it and then we got talking about angels going up and down so maybe Jesus was like going back and forth like the angels did hmm. oh, also question number 1 we decided to leave up to you Gail because uh <laughs> that one totally baffled us 
So question number one was, if Jesus came to earth to show us how to be fully human, to show us the entire breadth and depth of the invitation into God, would it make sense that his resurrected body would be showing us the same thing about our own future resurrected bodies? I don't know because as we were talking in our group and I said this, you know, we have science and we have history and we have these 2000 years to tell us that bodies decay, Mm -hmm. bodies disappear, skeletons may remain, you know, but our bodies are flesh and blood. It's a vessel that has served its purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, our spirit is no longer in need of that vessel. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, and bodies are blown to bits and there's nothing left. And and eventually, no matter who it is, you decompose and there's nothing left, right? Dust to dust, whole idea, right? Right. And maybe I was going to apologize to our group first because... We, I started with the chart. So we started with differences in body and actions. As you notice is the thing. And we didn't even hit the question. So I apologize, y'all. But what I was going to say um, when you're saying blowing to bits is maybe the point is it's not about the body. It's about the spirit only. I don't know. Well, does, there does was this... a time in history when a body had to be complete to be buried. They felt that it needed to be reassembled. All the pieces had to be there. If you want to really insult and destroy someone, you took the body to different places. Mm-hmm. You know? Where where was this done? In history. Yeah. In history. Yeah. And, and also- I know they did that. That teach that you should not cremate because the body needs to be intact for resurrection. That's right. And that's why people are are buried on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, so that they'll be the first bodies to be resurrected. Of course, all of these ideas, it seems to me, all these ideas don't come from Jesus. They don't they don't come from God. Right. Yeah. And because I know in the Wild West they did that to somebody like bank robbers and stuff. They would take they would bury him in the um the the I don't know what they called a bad cemetery at the time. I don't remember the word, a term they use, but they would they would put their like their body in one place and their arms someplace and their legs someplace and their head someplace else. And that's so they couldn't I always thought it was because they were afraid they were gonna come back as ghosts or something, but I bet it it was more of that history of of dividing the body up so they couldn't be resurrected. Which Right. So that just doesn't make any sense, right? Right. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. So I, I, what I'm wondering, and certainly Jesus' body could not have stood up and, I mean, his mm-hmm. body was lacerated and destroyed when he died. It just, there was not enough, it was in bad shape. And, and, um, and it makes no sense at all that that there would be this promise of a resurrect. There's what I'm trying to get to is the point that many Christians 
and Jews certainly in the in the scripture that we've been studying believe in a resurrection, right? But these gospel stories specifically talk about a resurrected body, not just a spiritual something that happens. And so it, I think we could all agree, it sounded pretty unanimous, that it's not this body, okay? Mm-hmm. It is somehow related to this body in that it is recognizable, but not immediately recognizable as being our body, right, in these stories, mm-hmm. but still recognizable in some way. It's very different in some way. And so these are all stories. I'm telling you the Bible as the, as it's laid out. I'm not making judgment calls here. Okay. Sometimes yeah. I do, but, but I just try to give you kind of weighting of facts and things. Um, but these stories are pretty unanimous about Jesus came, Jesus rose from the dead in a body. And this body had different characteristics. And this body was not immediately recognizable until what were the things, if you look back, what were the things Jesus did that caused them to recognize his, to recognize him? The breaking of the bread. bread. He broke the bread and he gave them food. Yeah. Also, what was the first thing several, he said, members in, several members in our group commented on, you know, reflecting back to what he said at the last supper when he gave them the bread and said, remember me. Yes. When you break my body. Yeah. Yeah, That gives that some new meaning, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's that we recognize him when we do that, because we're sharing with him. Look what um, Eric and Ellen said, you guys, they said, even just when he spoke, Mary recognized him. He spoke her name. So it was when he spoke her name. Mm. Yeah. You did you say something, Gail, before the breaking of the yeah, bread? He thanked God. Oh, thanked God. Okay. Uh-huh. He gave thanks. So the the reason that I was <clears throat> bringing this resurrected body part up is because. There seems to be in scripture this whole idea that we are more than our bodies, but our bodies are important, right? And what we're reading here is that our reserve that we will can we will in the future also have bodies. Mm-hmm. You'd be called a glower. We heard it called a glorified body. So that's a yeah. That's a and, way to put it, right? Well, and Marlene pointed out that there is scripture in there that says we come back as unrecognizable. Yeah, although yep. re- somehow recognizable, also right? There, yeah, because in these stories, you know, the the disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him until he broke bread. Mary didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener until he said her name. But when he appeared in the room with the disciples, they seemed to all have recognized him right away, but thought he was a ghost. Right. Mm-hmm. And then Thomas had to see the wounds and touch them to really believe that it was him. 
which is interesting that Jesus wounds carried forward in in a, in a healed way, right? Obviously, he could walk and talk and eat and be normal, but but somehow his physical body was recognizable in that these healed wounds, those, those scars were still there. Gail, I'm sharing with my with my group that I took several months ago. I took a class on um, disability theology. And the person who ran the class was talking about a book called um, The Wounded God and talked about how for so many people with disabilities, the fact that when Jesus was resurrected, the, the wounds were still there, you know, either still as healing wounds or as scars to show that he did not resurrect with a perfect body and that um, they can be fully included as a part of the family of God, even with disabled bodies. It's beautiful. Yes. Our disabilities do not define us. Hmm. They make us identifiable, but they do not. There's a question that's, percolating in my mind right now and I mentioned it in our group thinking back to I think it was last week we talked about when Jesus resurrected and the women ran to him he said don't touch me I haven't gone to my father yet yet he tells Thomas to touch him very good point so why did the men get to touch him (laughs) Well, apparently he went to his father and then came back. Which Somebody kind of, said that. Which kind of gets to that last question, which says, when Jesus was popping in and out of locked rooms, where might he have been before and after? And and that also relates to, to, the, to question three, where I quoted from Genesis 28, 11 through 13, about the, when Jacob um, stopped for the night, He's running, he's, he's, he takes um, one of the stones and as a pillow, he puts his head on it, goes to sleep. And he has a dream um, where he sees a stairway resting on earth with the top reaching to heaven and the angels are going up and down and the Lord is there and the Lord is standing above it and says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and the God of Isaac. Um, so Certainly all through the Hebrew Bible, we see angels going up and down. Mm-hmm. We see angels popping in and out, right? They suddenly appear. They suddenly disappear. That's all over the Hebrew Bible. Now, and and the Jacob story tells us they're coming and going from heaven. And certainly the whole, the word angel, it means messenger. It means they come to God, God. They come to us. They're like the, the postal service. They're the Pony Express. Okay, <laughs> and and uh, they're much more than that, of course. But but um, now we're seeing this in these gospel stories that Jesus is doing this. Is it possible that Jesus was unrecognizable because he was now in an angelic form, like when he first came to us? As the son of man, he was fully human. But now he is not human because we don't get up from our deceased bodies. 
could he have been something different? I think it's a, I think the word somewhat was Donna. Were you the one that mentioned the word glorified body? Yeah. And it's a different glorified. body. Yeah, but related. Okay, it's still us. But my question is. In all the other times when Jesus and his disciples there, we don't have tagalongs. Who's this person in their little group that they don't recognize and nobody says, who's this guy? I mean, it's nothing, but maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, I know when like uh, that the guy in the road and his wife. Um, Cleopas. And they ate with Jesus. Jesus showed up. It wouldn't have been unusual because everybody was leaving Jerusalem. So there was a lot of people on the road. So that mm-hmm. one. You can understand why they didn't think somebody walking up to him was strange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then they said that Mary Magdalene saw him as a gardener, which meant it wouldn't have been strange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're still expecting to see Jesus either. So, right. So the only time that he was totally recognized as who he was is when he showed up in the upper room. And everybody knew who he was. So it wouldn't have been somebody that wouldn't, I mean, would they recognize him because they were expecting him maybe? No, because it says they they thought he was a ghost. They were. Oh, afraid. yeah, they thought he was a ghost. They but didn't, they, Jesus, but he didn't say, do not be afraid, like yeah, the angels would say. He the did say that. Yeah, he's not angel. afraid. And he angels. didn't do that. And just like warrior things. Yeah. Or peace. This will keep me awake at night. I think it's parallel parallel time frames and universes and I will I will issue the invitation to the whole group that I issued to our small group that you can kick me out. Um, I tend to read the Bible less literally than a lot of people and more figuratively. And it seems to me that the reason that people, a possible reason that people didn't recognize Jesus is that it was actually somebody else. And it's like, I'm walking down the road. I've, I've just lost Jesus. I'm walking down the road and I, I'm talking to somebody who exudes the kind of love that Jesus taught. And all of a sudden my eyes are opened. Oh, you are the continuation of Jesus's life. So Jesus does still live through you and through me and through all of us. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. We made the sample to us about Jesus living through all of us. And every time he said it, it fit the scenario. So that was beautiful. I and think this, that's good But I think there's still some real concrete stuff that all these different people are saying. I'm not trying to disagree because I think that it's true too, but now we're talking possession. No, <laughs> Jesus possessed individuals as he came back. I well, I do think spirit. Uh, yeah, I think I do think that that I think maybe what what you're getting at, Woody, is that it's the spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that we're recognizing. Absolutely, Absolutely. Right? that we're recognizing yeah. the Holy Spirit in each other. Yeah. And I don't, and I I I take your point that that you know some people take this very very literally but you don't have to you can you know you can see it in lots of different ways uh people and still be a christian (laughs) 
Um, I mentioned to Woody that, or the group before, that this is because I was kind of raised in a church that taught it literally. And I was too. And the lessons lessons were not this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Also, I don't know if I read it in the Bible or I heard somebody that was teaching me saying that we need to recognize, we need to find the Jesus in every person. Mm -hmm. So what Woody said just made me think of that. And it's like, oh, that's what it meant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and jesus says he you know part of what i highlighted in the lesson was he said he will be with us every day Mm. he said every Mm -hmm. and so we should be expecting to see jesus with us every day as i told our small group i love that that greeting that i don't know what group it comes from but where you say Namaste. The the Christ in me recognizes the Christ in you. The light in me recognizes the light in you. Uh Yes. Mm -hmm. Namaste. I think of when they were still in the womb. Was it Jesus and uh, Joseph? And they recognized each other and jumped when the mothers came in. They were still in the womb. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John John the Baptist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how I think of like just that presence it's aware you're within that presence your heart leaps within you yes yeah so let's let's take the wrapping paper away all the you know is it physical is it not physical is it you know can he pop in and out of rooms can he not is did people just make this up but they all seem to agree but did they make it up you know um there's other stories like this out there what is the underlying message? Whether or not you believe it's physically happening. It is. It will be the same as the underlying message in the Hebrew Bible, which I put in question three. Point that God, that God is with us. Yes. And that... And I think what I see as the underlying message and is that the veil between heaven and earth has been torn. And that we are free to move within the throne uh, of God. That, yeah. that, 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 that 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 somehow the resurrection at the end fully unites those things in a well, way that's what we don't have now. pardon i was just saying that that's that part that the way i was brought up everything was that paid the price the mm-hmm. price had been paid which again and that would be the blood and the death and all that paid the price that now we have that connection but again, that not- connection I think existed all, you know, I think that Jesus, the point of Jesus' life is to show us that that connection exists. Right. And I'm just explaining that's how Mm -hmm. I'm seeing that that's not, the end result is still there, what they were trying to show. But that's how I'm seeing that taking heed, 
he was a completion. Maybe that's the right word. Yeah. Whether it was just right then or it was always completed because of him. So so I th- I think that one of the ways that we can look at this is that Jesus' life pre-crucifixion shows us what we can have as humans now in these bodies. We can have all that healing. We can have all that closeness with God. What his resurrected body is showing us is our future hope. His resurrected body is showing us how we won't just be on earth. We will be heaven and heaven and earth. Yes. And that there's something physical about it, that we eat, that we feast. The whole Bible is full of feasting imagery around heaven. Mm-hmm. Woody, you had something? Oh, oh I was just going to say, I, I believe, kind of as you were saying a minute ago, that the connection with God was always there. And the purpose of Jesus' life was to basically either show us how to connect or show us more perfectly or to how to reconnect Mm -hmm. uh, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this, these, these resurrection stories are, here's what you've got coming to you. (laughs) You know, Jesus talks, when Jesus talked about heaven, he talked about buildings. He talked about mansions. He talked about rooms. He talked about, um, he talked about food. He talked about there's is there's just something physical about heaven that I want us to hear in today's class. I think we tend to put heaven way off in the spiritual ether somewhere. But in the scripture, there is something physical about heaven. And I think that's wonderful. And we know this from the deathbed experiences of the people we love, who see the people that they love and recognize them, the ones who have gone before. So my husband and I have had conversations several times looking at um, the scientific theory of quantum physics and the possibility of multiple universes mm-hmm. um, and and have wondered if perhaps heaven, since we know that the universe itself is not like, there's not like just above the clouds, there's this, this right. place, um, that heaven might be literally when you step from this life into the next, that you're actually moving from this reality into an alternate yeah. universe. That is still something that might be why, of it. Yeah. and that might be why when people are dying, they're seeing their loved ones who dis, you know who went before them because that veil between the two universes is thinning for them, mm-hmm. and they're starting to cross over. That's another great vocabulary yeah. for trying to express what our minds cannot wrap ourselves around. Right. I would think this is all speculation, and you know stories from the ancient except for the death experiences of real people there is a reality here 
So we have finished the Gospels. Congratulations. Well, (laughs) (laughs) sweet quantum it's coming right up rocket science yeah no we're gonna skip next week um and if i need to skip more i'll let i'll let you know uh because i've got some out of town i'm going on a girl scout trip with my granddaughter oh my goodness (laughs) fortunately it sounds like glamping so uh Yeah, Girl Scouts clamp, they always. <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to it. She's the the little troop is adorable, and they're a beautiful age. Um, you know, eight years old, and just oh like, yeah. Uh, my daughter will be going, and so it. Oh, also, nice. I'm still. I wish I could show you what my desk looks looks like. I I took a picture and posted on Facebook of when I just started with the little strips of paper. It is covered. I, I'm afraid to turn the fan on. You know, it's covered with all these little strips of paper where I'm wrestling the timelines down. Because when I'm when I'm working on things like this, and and what I'm working on is Acts and the uh, Epistles of Paul, I do all the work myself first. I I read the commentaries. I you know, absorb what's out there. And and my approach is when I, once I start reading, I have read so much that I'm starting to hear the same things over and over. I know I've done it enough research. I know I've, I've reached the kind of nebulous boundaries of what's available. Um, But as I'm wrestling with the timelines of acts and the, uh, the letters that Paul, that we know Paul wrote, um, I do that on my own. And then I go back and I look at everybody else's timelines, because as you can imagine, just like there's a zillion, you know, there's different versions of these four gospels. There are many versions of the timelines and how all these things may or may not fit together. So it will be very interesting. It will be fun to to start the, the next part of the story. Um, and um, it's still taking shape which is why I need a little time here. So, I yeah, love you. It's great right to see your faces. Yeah, that's <laughs> the same way we do legislative yes. history. When you start to see the same thing over, you know you've got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's how you do research. Good yeah. to see the ease. Yeah. Yes. We miss you guys. We can see that you can't talk, so we understand. <laughs> we love you and i'll see you in in two weeks um i'll let you know if i need more time than that okay perfect have fun okay. glamping okay. Love y'all. Bye. Bye.